Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see four of you who are doing well for the rest of you. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Things will really get spicy in uh, Romans 9 here Uh, over the next few weeks, but today is more of a preamble. It's kind of setting us up for what's going on. Uh, When you read the book of Romans, uh, certain chapters and sections go together. So chapters 1 through 4 go together, chapters 5 through 8 go together, chapters 9 through 11 go together, and then uh, 12 through the end of the book kind of rounds out the book of Romans. So we're going to be moving into a new section here uh, in uh, the book of Romans. Now before we do, I want to start with a little story, all right? I have a buddy named Joel. He was a uh, guy that I went to college with. He's very witty. He's very clever. He now lives over in England. He lives over in the UK. And uh, I went to visit uh, the UK a few years ago and uh, was hanging out in one town. And Joel came to visit me. And I was going to go and spend the night uh, at his house. Okay, He and his wife had a place in uh, London. I was going to go spend the night with them. But uh, to back up a little bit, when I was in England, I had to purchase a personal fan that was different than an American fan, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but when I go to bed at night, my skin temperature jumps up to about 140 degrees, and so I have to have a fan that is continually blowing on me while I sleep, or else I'll have weird nightmares, okay? So I brought my fan from the US over to England and trying to plug it in the socket, but they have different sockets. So I just tried to do it anyway, and it burned out my fan, okay? So I had to buy an English fan, which is basically just a fan that wants to tax your tea unfairly, but it has a different plug. Okay? So I plugged it in. I had this fan while I was there. Now, I was flying back to Texas in like two days, and I thought, I'm not going to do anything with this fan. I can't use a British fan in, uh, in Texas. And so I asked my buddy Joel. I said, hey, I'm going over to your house later tonight. Would you like me to bring this fan? And he said, sure. So we were walking to the train station because in the UK, people just ride trains and stuff. And so we were walking to the train station. So my buddy Joel is in front of me, and I'm holding a fan. And he looks at his watch, and he realizes we're going to miss our train. If we don't get to the train station in time, we have to wait a few more hours for the next one. It's going to ruin the whole evening. And so we start sprinting down the road. Joel is running. I'm running behind him carrying a fan. And every time we run by a group of people, he yells, I can't believe you stole that fan. That's what he's doing. Because that's what it looks like. That's what kind of guy Joel is. He's quick-witted. He's clever. Now, another story about him, which uh, I'll uh, I'll explain here in just a second. One time on social media, on uh, Facebook, he put up a picture of he and his wife, not inappropriate or anything like that, but just a picture of he and his wife, and he just tagged it with this. He said, my wife is so hot. That's what he said, just a picture of he and his wife. Now, I think that that is a strange thing to put online because people can neither agree with it nor disagree with it without it becoming awkward. So if he puts, my wife is so hot, and everybody's like, yeah, she is, that's a problem. Conversely, if they say, nah, she's kind of homely looking. I I think she's kind of gross. That doesn't help either, okay? And so he put up that post, and I was trying to let him know how weird that was, and so I just commented, and I said, this is a strange thing to say because people can neither agree nor disagree, right, without it being weird. So I sent that post, and I got offline, and then later I went back and looked at it, and somehow, I don't know if I typed this or it autocorrected, but it said, agree to disagree, So he put up this picture, my wife is so hot, and I type, agree to disagree. When I realized what had happened, I needed to go over the top 
in explaining to him that I love you and I'm your friend and I'm not trying to be mean and I don't know what happened, right? So I didn't just like delete it. I deleted it. I called him. I explained what happened. I'm like, no, you know, your, your, wife, your wife's lovely. And I'm trying to explain to him all these things. And I'm going over the top so he knows that I love him and care for him, okay? Now, the reason I tell you that is because that's really what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text. He's going to start off in verse 1 promising three times. What I'm about to say is true. I'm not lying. Please listen to me. I really love you. Later, he's going to say he's willing to go to hell for them. He's trying to go over the top and explaining his love for the Jewish people, lest they think that because Paul's critiquing them, unless they think because what Paul's about to say about election means that Paul doesn't love them, what Paul is doing is here you get to see the heart of Paul the pastor. And he's trying to go over the top and explain what he's saying and what he means. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we will get into verse 1. Almighty God, we thank you for uh, just your overwhelming grace, and we just pray for help as we work through this text. We thank you for your word, that it is a uh, light to our path, uh, that we don't have to be like the pagan nations uh, who don't know what you want, but rather you've given us your word in black and white. And so we thank you for that. We ask for help from the Holy Spirit that we might uh, not only understand these truths, but then apply them to our hearts. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 1. Here's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So here's my question for you. Why does Paul say the same thing three times? Why does he say, I promise? Seriously, I promise. No, really, seriously, I promise. Because that's what he's doing. I'm telling the truth in Christ. Just in case you didn't believe me, I'm not lying. Just in case you didn't believe, my, my conscience tells me that I'm telling the truth and my conscience is true in the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. Why is he going over the top in this? Okay, now here's why. Anytime you critique somebody, they assume that you don't like them. They assume that you don't love them, no matter who you're critiquing, okay? Critiquing somebody is actually gracious. If somebody is in the wrong and you give them correction, you give them truth, that's gracious. If somebody's walking towards a cliff and you're like, hey, you're going to fall off a cliff, they should say, thank you, and turn around. But that's not typically what people do, okay? So I'll give you some modern examples, and then I'll show you how this would work in Paul's day. So if you were to go up to somebody who is, let's say, practicing homosexuality, which the Bible says is a sin. I know that's controversial. The Bible's controversial. Uh, And you go up to them and you say, hey, listen, this is a sin. But what you're missing out on is the greatness of Christ. What you're looking for and what you're longing for is fulfillment, acceptance, a deep relationship, etc. And that won't be found in your sin. That will only be found in Christ. People will then critique you for not loving that person, despite the fact that everything you just told them is for their good and for their joy and because you do love them. Are you with me? The same thing happens with uh, the abortion thing. Across the world, each day, 125,000 babies are aborted. 3,000 in the United States, 900 black babies from Planned Parenthood every day. That's every day. So if you go up to someone and you say, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill all these humans because these humans have value, what people will say is, no, you know what, you're attacking women. I'm like, no, I don't know if you just heard the statistics or not, but half of all those babies I just mentioned, within the tens of thousands, are women. Nobody's caring more for these women than trying to give them a life and trying not to let you uh, oversert your authority onto their body and murder them. But if you say that, people will say, oh, you hate women. Oh, you're so bigoted, whatever it is. That's always been the case that people will say that. So when the Apostle Paul goes and he says, you're not saved by being a Jew, you're not saved by the Mosaic law, you are only saved by faith in Christ, 
what his opponents can do is they can have a tendency to think that the Apostle Paul is being mean. He's being Jewophobic, that he's being anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, despite the fact that Paul is a Jew and Paul worships a Jew, right? When the Bible critiques the Jews, it's not being racist. It's not critiquing an ethnicity. It's critiquing their theology. It means unbelieving Jews, Jews that don't believe in Jesus. It's a theological issue, not an ethical issue, or an ethnic issue, rather. Does that make sense? So why is Paul having to say, trust me, I'm not lying, I love you, I love you, you had all these promises, why is he trying to do that? Because anytime you critique somebody's false belief or false action, they will think that you hate them, despite the fact that allowing people to continue in their sin means you hate them and actually making them turn to truth and life and joy and fullness is a sign of love. You with me? Let's start it off heavy. Let's get into verse 2. What are you promising, Paul? That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here's what Paul is saying. I hate that so many Jews have not come to know Christ, who is the Jewish Messiah, that I am constantly sorrowful. I am constantly longing for their salvation. Paul is not just an ivory tower theologian. He's given us a lot of good theology. He is someone who weeps over the lost. He is someone who cares for these people that don't know Christ, okay? And he longs for them. And that's what he's saying here. It's similar to what Jesus says about, uh, the, uh, about Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see both in Christ and here in Paul and Romans, there's this longing, there's this desire to say, believe, believe, repent, there's joy. We think of repentance as a bad thing. Repentance is a good thing. To be walking towards a cliff and turn around and not fall off the cliff, super great. But it means we have to admit that we're wrong. That's correct because we're not the hero of Christianity. We're not the hero of this story. Christ is. Okay? Now look again at verse 2. It says something else that's just interesting. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Let me ask you this. Can you be a Christian and constantly be battling sorrow? Yes. There's a sinful type of anxiety to where you just don't trust God. That needs to be repented of and resisted. But are there times you can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Can you be like Jesus, a man of sorrows? Can you be like the Apostle Paul and have, and I quote, unceasing anguish, where this is like always a burden on him and still love Christ and be a Christian? Verse 2 would say yes. Verse 2 would say yes. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here's what Paul is saying. This is strong. Ready? Here's what he's saying. I love my lost Jewish brothers so much that I would be willing to go to hell for them. That's what he's saying. That if I could do some sort of tradesies, if I could do something where I trade my salvation for their condemnation, I would do it. That's how much I love them. Just in case you didn't get it from all his promises, just in case you didn't get it from the fact that he has this sorrowful heart for them, he now says, if there was a way where I could go to hell and you could be saved, I would do it. I would do it. I love you that much. Three things I want to point out in this text that I think are interesting. First of all, look at that word accursed. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Accursed is not a word that we use very often in uh, modern English. So if somebody cuts in front of you on the highway, you're typically not like, accursed, ye. That's not what you yell out unless you're Amish or something and they pull in front of your horse and buggy. We don't use that word a lot. In Greek, it's the Greek word anathema. 
Maybe you've heard that word, anathema. Anathema is a really strong way in Greek to say damned. Okay? That's what it means, going to hell. That's what he's saying. It's used, for example, when Paul says in Galatians that if an angel should come to you and give you a false gospel, i.e. Mormons and uh, Muslims and these other things, that let that person be anathema, meaning going to hell, damned. It's a strong term. In church history, it's used for somebody who is outside the faith. If you got kicked out of church, you had church discipline exercised on you, what's called excommunication throughout most of, most of, church, dis- or, sorry, throughout most of church history, and you died while being excommunicated, so you died in a state of excommunication, they would say you are anathema. You've not repented. You obviously don't know Christ. So it's a strong term. He's saying, I wish I myself could be damned on their behalf. And you don't have to know Greek to know that. The very next phrase says, and cut off from Christ, in case you needed some context clues. Next, he says, for the sake of my brothers. Now here, brothers means something different than it often means in Paul. Typically, when the Apostle Paul uses the phrase brothers and sisters, he's talking about those in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. What makes us similar is more important than what makes us different. We're in Christ. And so therefore, we have a new spiritual family. Christians are brothers and sisters. That's not how Paul's using the term here. Here he's using the term to talk about those of his ethnicity, which is why he says, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's not saying that they're saved. He's not saying that they're Christians. He's saying, I do have some link to them. I'm ethnically Jewish, all right? And the last thing I want to say about this is this. Is this something you can actually do? Can you trade your salvation for somebody else? Is this a real thing for Paul? No. Last week I said that nothing can separate you from Christ's love because the Scripture said all things in all creation, which would include you. This is another evidence that you can't lose your salvation. The Apostle Paul is willing to say, I'm willing to go to hell for them because he knows that's not how it works. It only works through Christ. Christ is the way for salvation. To not know Christ is to not have salvation. And so what Paul is saying here is not God will actually grant this request. He's saying, I love these people so much that I'm willing to go to hell, with, hell for them. So you need to understand, I'm not just critiquing bad theology. I love them, I love them, I love them. Now there's a similar place to what Paul is doing here as kind of this mediator in the Old Testament, okay? Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where you have Jewish people that are being unfaithful, that are not walking in righteousness, that are walking in idolatry, and there's this mediator-type figure that stands in the gap for them? It's Exodus 32, 30 through 32. This is probably in Paul's mind as he's thinking through this. Look at this passage. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see something similar. Moses is saying, God, please forgive the Israelites. And if you're not going to do that, then just blot me out. I I so badly want them to be saved that if that's not going to happen, what is the point? You see that angst. That's kind of what's going on with Paul. Paul is saying, I so badly want them to be saved that if you're not going to do that, what's the point? What's the point? Again, you see the heart of Paul, the pastor. Now look at this next verse and a half. This one's interesting. Verse 4 through 5a, the first part of verse 5, says this. They are Israelites, which, by the way, is more of a term of endearment. Sometimes the term Jews in the New Testament is combative, talking about non-believing Jews. But here, this term Israelites is one of uh, relationship. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Okay? Now, before I get into this text, to set it up, I'm going to use a little illustration from a dream I had this week. So you know it's going to be weird. Okay? Now, this was not a dream from God. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, this is just a dream. But I want to tell you a little bit about this dream. Now, I don't know what you dream about when you dream. You might have great dreams. You might have big dreams. Maybe in your dream you're driving a Ferrari or you're flying or whatever. My dreams sometimes are super mundane, okay? And so in this dream, here's what happened. This happened on Tuesday night, or maybe it was Monday night. And here was my dream. Ready? I went into a Dairy Queen to get a Heath Blizzard. That's it. That was my dream. So I go into Dairy Queen, and there's a line, and I stand in line in my dream. Like just sitting there in my dream, waiting in line. I could make it go as fast as I want. It's in my head. That's why dreams are so weird. You become unconscious, your brain plays a movie that you think is real, and then you wake up and you wonder, am I in the matrix, right? So anyway, so I stand in line in my dream and just have to stand there. Finally, I get up to the counter and I say, I would like one Heath Blizzard, please. Does everybody know what a blizzard is? They're delicious. It's like ice cream. I think there's a little chocolate syrup, and then you can get crushed candy put in there, whether it's a Butterfinger Blizzard or an M&M Blizzard or whatever. Because I'm a little bit pretentious, I like a Heath Blizzard. Heath is like this chocolate-covered toffee. And so I say, I'd like one Heath Blizzard, please. And the lady behind the counter goes, I don't know what that is. And I said, this is Dairy Queen. It's on the sign. Look, Heath Blizzard. She goes, okay, we'll try to make it. Why don't you wait over here? So I go to the side and sit at this little table and wait more in my dream. I wait 10 minutes. I look at my watch in my dream and I thought, man, that's been, I don't know how long that is in dream time, but I don't know how long it is if I'm being incepted. But as I'm sitting there, I think 10 minutes. And then there's another lady that comes up to order food and she looks over at me and says, that guy's sitting too close to the counter. And I'm like, are you? I'm at a table. Apparently, the people who work here don't think that I'm too close to the counter because they put me at a table. Leave me alone, mean dream woman. And then she gets mad. And so Dream Zach is feeling guilty. So Dream Zach goes up and says, you know what? I'm so sorry. Let me buy your lunch, okay? And then I go back to sit at the table to wait some more. Now, at that point, someone comes up and they have this melted-looking gross shake with M&Ms in it. And they say, here you go. And I say, what is this? This is not a Heath Blizzard. These are M&Ms. Why is it all melted? He goes, well, it's a different drink we have here. It's called a wizard. That's what he said. So I said, wait a second. You know I want a blizzard enough to bring me a drink that's not a blizzard, but is like a melted blizzard with a similar name. Take it back. So he takes it back, and guess what I do? Wait for another 10 minutes. So at this point, it's been 20 minutes of waiting in my dream. And eventually, everybody leaves, and there's one person behind the counter. And so I walk around, and I just say, hey, can I get a Heath Blizzard, please? She goes, I don't, know, I don't know what that is. I said, listen, can you just take some ice cream and put it in a cup and take a handful of that crushed Heath pieces over there and just throw it in the cup? She goes, nope. <laughs> so I left, and I went to McDonald's. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Dairy Queen, you had one job, okay? Here's what Paul is saying. In the same way that in my dream, they were set up for success. They, I'm at a Dairy Queen. They have it on the menu. I'm telling them how to make it. They even have some weirdo drink called a wizard, apparently, that's like a blizzard. 
And I walked back and I explained to them step by step how to make it. They didn't make it still. And so I went to McDonald's. Now, here's what Paul's saying. You Jews had everything stacked in your favor. Everything. You had the menu. You had God's law. You had the prophets telling you how to make this. You had everything stacked in your favor. And to fail to do the most important thing, which is to follow God by following his Messiah. What God has done, in a sense, is he has gone to McDonald's. Now, Paul will say that he has not neglected his people. There's a sense in which God still loves Dairy Queen, to use this example. But Paul will go on to explain this in Romans 9 through 11. What role, then, does the Jewish people have in God's plans of redemption? But here what Paul is saying is this. I hate that you have missed the Messiah because everything was stacked in your favor. You had one job, is what he's saying. That is why I'd be willing to go to hell for you. That's what he's saying in all of this, okay? Let's look through this list here of the things he says. Again, verses uh, 4 through 5a. They are Israelites. Oh, by the way, let me just mention this about my dream. When I woke up from the dream, I thought to myself, those people at Dairy Queen are so stupid. And then I realized they all exist in my mind. It's me. I'm the one who's causing the problem. Okay. Verses 4 through 5a. Look at the benefits, he says. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. He lists seven benefits, seven, if you will, Jewish privileges that the Jews had that nobody else had, and he'll mention an eighth one in just a second, but let's work through these seven here, okay? First, he says, they had the adoption, okay? Now, that's not the same way that Paul will use the term in talking about Christians being adopted. When we become Christians, when we put our faith in Christ, God adopts us into his family, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying all the Jews were personally adopted as individuals and therefore were believers. He's saying of all the nations on earth, God decided to elect Israel, and that's it. They weren't the biggest nation. They weren't the prettiest girl at the ball, but God just decided to set his love on them. So do you still have to believe and actually be faithful to God to be saved in the Old Testament Yes, but there is a sense in which the nation of Israel as a whole is in covenant with God and other nations are not, okay? That's what he's meaning here by adoption. He then says the glory. What does that mean? It's that they got to experience God's glory in the tabernacle and in the temple, okay? So God doesn't have a body. God is not a spatial being. God is everywhere, but his presence is especially felt in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple. Though God is everywhere, his presence is especially powerfully felt in the tabernacle and in the temple. That's what Paul is saying. They got to feel the glory of God. They got to be close to the presence of the glory of God. The covenants. It's to them that God had these special relationships. A covenant is like this personal, binding, strong, relational agreement. And so God had made that with Israel. You see that with Noah. You see that with Moses. You see that with David. You see that, in a sense, with Adam and all these other kinds of things. And he's saying this was another benefit that they had. The Mosaic law. They were given the Old Testament law. We've talked about this in Romans. God's Mosaic law, the Old Testament, is a good thing. It is a gift. It's bad news for us because we can't keep it. But the problem is sin, not the law, which simply exposes sin. The law is good. It's Israel and Israel alone that knowed what that that, that, knowed, <laughs> that knew what God requires. I didn't sleep well last night because of all the weird dreams and the hot fan stuff. Uh, it's Israel that knew who God was and what He requires. You have to realize that's a big benefit. 
Look at the pagan nations in the Old Testament. They're literally sacrificing their children to demons by burning them in fire because they don't know what the gods want. Maybe if I kill my kids, then it will rain. They're partaking in sexual fertility cults to make the crops grow. Maybe that's what the gods want. We don't know. Israel has the advantage because they get to know exactly who God is and exactly what God requires, and that is a gift, the Mosaic law. The fifth thing he mentions is the worship, meaning it was Israel that was shown true worship, how to worship God rightly. It was Israel that was given the sacrificial system and holy days and Sabbath and new moon feast and these kind of things and specifically temple worship, specifically temple worship. The sixth thing he mentions is he says they were given God's promises of blessing, of life, of being a great nation, that God had promised Israel all these things. And then the seventh thing he says is the patriarchs, okay? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is God who goes to these figures and says, for example, to Abraham, through your seed, through one of your descendants, I'm going to redeem the world. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. The goal of Israel wasn't just to stay Israel. The goal of Israel was to get a Messiah who would redeem all nations because God is the God of the whole world, not just of Israel. And yet, Paul is lamenting because so many of them missed it. Let me ask you this question. Would you raise your hand if you are ethnically Jewish? Not spiritually Jewish. If you're a Christian, you're spiritually Jewish. Would you raise your hand if you're ethnically Jewish? Go ahead and look around. Okay. How did a Jewish faith, half the world away, get to McKinney, Texas with a bunch of different Gentiles? We have African-American people in here. We have white people in here. We have Asian people in here. We have Indian people in here. We have Hispanic people in here. How did that happen? And the answer is that when the Jews rejected the Messiah, God opens his grace to take in Gentiles. Now, that was always God's plan, but you need to see that there is an extra element of grace there. It's not just that God gave you grace in saving you, though he didn't have to. He gave you grace in allowing you into a Jewish faith without you having to become Jewish. Okay? That's what's going on here. Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, specifically a scholar in Romans, says this about this passage. He grieves because ethnic Israel has been the beneficiary of God's goodness in the past and was promised a glorious future. These promises have not come to pass, and thus they call into question God's righteousness. To see these privileges as passed on to the church badly misconstrues Paul's argument since his grief is due to the promises made to ethnic Israel. Yes, there's a sense in which the church is the new Israel. We're called the, new, we're called the Israel of God, for example, in Galatians. But Paul here in this passage is longing to say, why did so many people who should have gotten it, who had the Bible, who had the covenants, who had a, why did they miss it? And he'll go on to explain this as we study Romans 9 through 11. Now look at the last half of the last verse. This is the most powerful section in this text this morning, so I'm going to spend a lot of time on this. It says this, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay? A few things I want you to see. First of all, he says who Jesus is. He's the Christ. Okay? The question is not, did Jesus exist? Most people would agree with that. The question is, who is Jesus? Is he just some good moral prophet? Is he some good moral teacher? And this text clearly says he is the Christ. What does that mean? When you read the word Christ... Don't think that that's Jesus' last name. He's not like Mr. Christ or something like that, okay? That is a title. When you read the word Christ, you need to think this phrase, ready? King of Israel. You need to think the word king. When you read the word Christ or when you read the word Messiah, you need to think king, King Jesus. King Jesus did this. King of Israel Jesus did this. That's what you need to think. The Greek word Christos, where we get the word Christ, 
And the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah, both mean the same thing. They mean king. Literally, they mean the anointed one, but we don't typically do anointings in, uh, in Texas in 2018. But in the Old Testament, if someone was going to be become a king as part of their coronation ceremony, as part of their becoming king ceremony, they would take oil and pour it on their head and say, long live King David or whoever it is, okay? That's who Christ is, okay? He's saying Jesus is not just some moral prophet. He is the Christ, the King of Israel, the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. There are people that throw Jesus in the same bucket as like Gandhi or Buddha or something like that and act as though he's a good moral teacher. Listen to the claims that Jesus makes, and that's a big problem, okay? So take Gandhi, for example. Let's say Gandhi came, and instead of just having passive, nonviolent resistance, Gandhi said things like this. I'm God's son. I forgive you of your sins. You need to worship me. You need to love me more than anyone in your family. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. That would be a cult leader. That would be crazy. So either Jesus is who he claimed to be, or you need to hate him. You need to get as, as far away from that weirdo as you can. Those are your options, though. But to just act as though he's kind of a Jewish first century Gandhi misses the point. Yes, he's a prophet. He says that. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. But he is more than just a prophet. And here in 5b it says, and from their race. Let me tell you why this is important. I told a story once, I'll tell it just briefly again. I got a chance to go to Israel, and while we were in Jerusalem, a Jewish man came up to our little group that was there, and he was an evangelist for this guy that he thought was the Messiah. He came up and he had tracks, like you might have today. He had tracks, and he's like, we found the Messiah. And I'm like, finally, you know? Who is he? And he hands me this track of this pasty-looking white dude from Poland or something that was living in New York City or something, and I said... Ah, so close. I said, where did the Bible, where does the Bible say that the Messiah will be born? And he said, Bethlehem, which means Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem. I said, that's right, Bethlehem. I said, where was this guy born? And he said, New York City. And I said, is Bethlehem New York City? No, right? It's important that Jesus be the Jewish Messiah, that he come from Israel. If you've ever been reading in Matthew or Luke and there's these genealogies and you're like, oh, this guy's the son of this guy and this guy's the son of this guy. This is so boring. Why is this here? Because if you're going to devote your life to the Messiah, you got to get him right. You got to get the right guy. He's got to be from Abraham because God promised Abraham that he would have a descendant that would bless all nations. He's got to be from David's line because God promised David that he would never fail to have a king on the throne. It's very important that you see that. So Paul is showing that the very people that should have got it from whom the Messiah came ethnically, have missed it. That's what he's saying here, okay? That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to see something else in 5b, which is theological and I think very important, okay? Let me read it again. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. Let's do a little theology of who Jesus is, okay? When we talked about the Trinity, we said there are three things you need to know about the Trinity that the Bible is very clear on. We said, one, that there's only one God. We are monotheists. The Bible is very clear on this. There are no gods beside me, God says, that there are none before him, none after him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Bible is very clear that there's only one God. Yet, somehow this one God is three distinct persons at the same time. That Jesus is God and the Spirit is God, but they're different from each other, the persons, yet there's only one God. And we also said that each person is fully God. 
Don't think of God as a pie chart with three sections of pie. Jesus is God. Whatever it means to be God, that's what Jesus is. Whatever it means to be God, that's what the Spirit is, okay? And so we said, when it comes to the Trinity, you need to know those three things. There's only one God. God is three distinct persons. Each person is fully and truly God, okay? Now, when it comes to the person of Christ, here's what you need to know. Four things, biblically. Jesus is one person, okay? There's not two Jesuses. God is not a quadrinity or something. He's a trinity. There's only one person. He has two distinct natures. They're not mixed or something. Two distinct natures. That he is fully God and that he is fully man, okay? That's what the Bible teaches about Christ. Here in this passage of talking about the one person, Jesus, you get to see the reference to his humanity and to his deity. It's a powerful passage. Let's look at his humanity first. 5b says this, and from their race, according to the flesh. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word flesh, it, means, it has a negative connotation. It means something like sinful part of you. That's not what it means here. Here it means that Jesus is really human. That's why it also says according or from their race. He's so human that he has an ethnicity. But just in case you're not convinced, let me give you a bunch of passages that talk about the humanity of Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted, and this passage says Jesus is tempted. Why? Because it's talking about his humanity. He has to feel the weight of temptation if he's going to be a sympathetic high priest. Luke 2.40, when talking about Jesus, says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. God doesn't grow. God doesn't become strong. God doesn't uh, have to learn and be filled. He already is filled with wisdom. It's talking about the humanity of Christ, that as he's growing up as a little Jewish baby, he's learning things, and he's growing, okay? John 4, 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Notice that he gets tired, okay? He gets tired. God doesn't get tired. Even when the Bible says that God rested on the seventh day, that doesn't mean God's wiping sweat off his forehead and drinking water. It means that God is glorying in everything that he's just made. He's reveling in everything he's just made. But here, Jesus gets tired. Why? Because he's truly human. Matthew 26, 38 through 39. Listen to this. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Let me pause there real quick. If Jesus is truly and fully human, he has to have all the components that humans have. We are not just bodies. We have souls. We have minds. We have wills. Jesus doesn't just have a human body, although he does have that. He has a human mind. He has a human soul. He has a human will. Okay? Listen, he's not Clark Kent. Clark Kent looks like you, but he's not really human. He's some alien from this planet or whatever, right? I don't like Superman. He's too much of a goody-two-shoes. But also... He's, he's not a sympathetic high priest. He's not someone who is, he just looks like you, but he's not actually human, right? He has on glasses, and then he just simply takes them off, and people are like, who the heck are you? No mask. Jesus is not like Clark Kent. He doesn't just appear to be human. He's actually human. Jesus was a fetus, to say it another way. Jesus went to the restroom. He ate food. He's a human. These texts are saying that. Now look, he doesn't just have a human body here. It's talking about his human soul, his human will. Look at this passage again. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell down on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's talking about his human, his humanity, his human will. 
He doesn't say, not my will, but mine. He says, not my will, but thine. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For Jesus to be the mediator, he has to be God and man because those are the two parties he's reconciling, okay? Only God can save, so Jesus has to be God, and it's man who needs saving, so he has to be man. You have to hold both. This passage holds both. You can't say on one half of it, yeah, he's fully God, but he's not fully man on the second half. You, whatever he is, he has to hold it equally on both sides, okay? Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. However you take the word man there, you have to be consistent. How human is Jesus? As human as Adam. Can you be truly human and not have a sin nature? Yes, Adam was truly human and didn't have a sin nature. Okay? So here we see a strong affirmation of the humanity of Christ. He comes from the Jews. He is he's ethnically Jewish. But look at the end of this passage. You also see his deity. You also see his deity. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, we're almost done, but I need you to bear with me because things are about to get a little technical. Are you ready? Some of you love this stuff. That's why you're at Parkway, because we go deep. Well, that's what we're going to do. You ready? The end of verse 5 is very, very difficult to translate in Greek. There are actually eight different ways to translate it. Okay, I want to show it to you. We've got a little slide that's going to show you. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Greek. I've put a translation below that that is as literal as I can make it, okay? Literally in Greek, at the end of this passage, it says this. The Christ according to the flesh, the one being overall God, blessed into the ages, amen. What does that mean? Read it again. The Christ according to the flesh, the one being overall God, blessed into the ages, amen. It's kind of confusing. Different translations will translate this in different ways. But basically, it boils down to two. So we've got another slide I want to show you. Basically, it boils down to these two, okay? Christ, who is overall, is one translation. And then notice that the person shifts their focus to then talk about God the Father. So one translation says Paul was focusing on Christ. He then stopped focusing on Christ and in an exclamation of praise, turned and praised God the Father. So the first way to translate that, that is a major way to translate it, is right up there. Christ, who is God overall. Now I'm done talking about Christ. God forever praised, amen. Okay? The second one directly calls Jesus God, though. Christ, who is God overall, forever praised, amen. So if that was a little technical, let me just summarize it for you. Here's what, here's what people debate. Is this a text that directly calls Jesus God? Some say, no, it was talking about Christ. But then when Paul is praising, he's talking about God the Father, Others say, yes, it's directly calling Jesus God, okay? Now, which view do I think is right? I think that second view is right. I think your ESV translators absolutely get this right. There's a lot of technical reasons why. I think that that is the uh, best way to take the relative clause in Greek, et cetera, et cetera. But context is really how you know. Paul was just talking about Jesus, and he continues talking about Jesus in this passage, He's not breaking this after talking about Christ being the Messiah. He's continuing that thought. Paul's whole point is this. You ready? In the Jews, in rejecting Jesus, have rejected their God. They haven't just missed some small thing that by missing who Christ is, they've missed the whole purpose of all those other benefits, of all the benefits of covenants and glory and all these kind of things. 
That is what Paul is saying. Now, not only that, but in the same way I gave you a bunch of passages pointing to Jesus' humanity, let me give you some proof for his deity. We're not asking whether or not Jesus is God. That's obvious from other passages in the Bible. We're saying, does this passage call him God? And the answer, I think, is yes. Paul does this elsewhere. Look look with me at uh, Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, talking about the second coming, so it has to be about Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote Romans. Paul wrote Titus. In both cases, he calls Jesus God. He's fine with that. Why? Because Paul is Trinitarian. He doesn't know what that term means, but he only believes there's one God, and he thinks Father, Son, and Spirit are God. Okay? Hebrews 1.3. Let's look at other passages in the Bible. He, talking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Not God Jr., not similar to God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, what? O God. He's calling the Son God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, here again it calls the Son God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's this Word? John will go on to say it's the one that became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not 50% of deity dwells bodily, not 75%, but 100%. Okay? Jesus is fully and truly God. When it comes to the human column, he's fully human. When it comes to the God column, he's fully God, yet somehow he's only one person. Okay? John 20, 27 through 28. Then he, that's Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Who is the one creator God? Jesus, this text says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This text says he's the creator. He's the one that put everything in existence. And it says that he's eternal. Notice that he is before all things. And then lastly, and this would be a really, really good one for Paul's case that he's making against the Jews here. Jude 5 says this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who is the God of the Old Testament that delivers Israel out of Egypt? Jesus, this text says. So I say all of that to simply say this. The crescendo of Paul's argument is this. Did the Jews have all these other things that should have stacked the deck in their favor? Yes. But in rejecting Jesus, they have rejected the God of Israel. Nobody comes to the Father except through the Son, the Bible will say. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you had the glory, you had the covenants, the Messiah came from your ethnicity, and when you reject him, you reject Yahweh. You reject the God of the Old Testament. That's the strength of what Paul is saying. And he ends it with a burst of praise by saying the word, amen. Amen is not like just something you have to say at the end of a prayer to make it go through. Okay? It's not like clicking send on an email. Amen means I agree with this. That's what it means. When you say something in church and someone says amen, what they're saying is I agree. 
so let it be. I affirm that. I stand behind that. I cast my ballot in that direction. And so Paul, after praising who Christ is, burst out with, Amen. Amen. Now, this is kind of a strange text. Last week was really encouraging. Nothing can separate you from God's love. What is this week about? Basically how a bunch of Jewish people missed out on the Messiah, but Paul really loves him, them, and he's not mad at them, but they should see who Christ is. He is the God-man. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. That's the point. What Paul is doing this morning is he is giving us an introduction to the next two chapters. He's setting up what he's going to talk about. Basically, he's trying to ask this question. Has God been unfaithful? God promised salvation to the Jews. Most Jewish people don't know Christ. Is God unfaithful? That's what Paul's going to be unpacking. But before he says any of that, he wants to say, I love you. Hear me out on this. This is who Christ is. That's what he's wanting to say. Let me give you some application. Is there some application for this strange text? I've got four points of application for you. Here's the first one. Do you love the lost? Do you love the lost like Paul does? Are there certain kinds of lost people you don't like? You don't like lost Muslims. You don't like lost liberals or conservatives, depending where you are politically. You don't like lost fill-in-the-blank age groups. You don't like lost millennials. You don't like lost older people, whatever it is. Do you love the lost? Because the Apostle Paul loves these lost people so much that he's willing to go to hell for them, and they're people who've tried to kill him. Number two, do you realize that God doesn't owe you salvation? Not only because we're sinners, we're saved by grace, but we're Gentiles. We should see even more grace than we typically think of according to texts like this. We didn't have all these things stacked in our favor, and yet God decided to save us in his mercy. Number three, and I think this is a big one for this text. Do you realize that just because you don't understand what God is doing, that doesn't mean that he is unfaithful? That's huge. Most of the struggles you go through in your life, you will not know why they're happening, and your tendency will be to think that God has abandoned you and that he has been unfaithful. In this text and the next two chapters scream, that's not true. God is never unfaithful. He's the default of what faithfulness means. So just because you don't understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, he's not at fault. We are because we're limited and we're sinful and we're human. This is something Paul's going to continue to address in these next two chapters. And then lastly, do you think God is unfair because he doesn't save some? Do you think God is unfair because he doesn't save some? Do you think a creator owes creation stuff? Or do you think a creator has the right to do with the stuff he made whatever the heck he wants to do? The issue of election, which we will have to continue talking about in Romans, which we just finished talking about in theological equipping, ultimately isn't really about election. It's about this question. Ready? What does God have the right to be God over? That's the question. How free is God? Does your freedom limit God's freedom? Those bigger questions. Do you really think God is that sovereign? Can God do whatever the heck he wants because he's God, or does he owe us something? I want to end by reading this passage again, verses 4 through 5 again, in the, uh, the New Living Translation, which uh, is not my favorite. It's more of a paraphrase. It's, it's not uh, as word for word as I would like it to be, but they do an excellent job of translating these verses. So I want to end with this, and then we will pray. Paul says this, They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. 
And he is God, talking about Christ, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Let's pray as the uh, volunteers serving communion come up to pass out the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. Uh, I confess that I've not been as excited to talk about this text because it seems a bit obscure to me. It seems uh, less relevant, but I know that your word is inspired and inerrant, that what you wanted us to hear today was Romans 9, 1 through 5. And so would you help us apply this to our heart? Might we know that you love us by grace? Might we know that we should love the lost? Might we know that we don't have to understand what you're doing to know that you're faithful? May we bless you that you have uh, allowed uh, the Savior to come to us, even Gentiles, hopefully to provoke the Jews to jealousy so that everybody might be saved by grace, Paul will go on to say. And so we love you. We thank you for this text. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.